Welcome to a very special episode of Disclosure, one that might just become the tipping point of your spiritual experience because our subject today is really, really important. It might be the thing that moves you from uh, the mere formality of religion to a deeply personal understanding of who God is and what Jesus should mean to you. My name is Sean Boonstra. Today I'm in studio with the lovely and talented Miss Jean from Discovery Mountain. Welcome to Disclosure. (laughs) Glad to be here. Yeah, it's not your first time here, is no. it? No. You've been working on Disclosure, aren't you, like in Season 6 and 7 by now? Of Discovery Mountain. Oh, yes. I said Disclosure, didn't I? Yeah, Discovery <laughs> Mountain. Okay. Yes, we are working on Season 6 right now. And Discovery Mountain, if you've not heard of it, listeners, is um audio program for kids, discoverymountain.com. Yeah, and the very best character in that entire show is Chaplain Simon. I'm telling you, <laughs> children from all over the world are writing letters asking, we want more Chaplain Simon well, on you, the show. I did receive a letter yeah. that said that. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah, but, I mean, and I asked just you, the one, Sean, did just you write that letter? <laughs> yeah, just the one. Yeah, but you I'm do actually a, the voice of voice Yeah, I'm that. the voice of Chaplain mm-hmm. Simon, apparently. But I get bit parts. Like I get two words a season. A season. <laughs> a little more than that. And my but... public demands. Yeah, it's my apparently. public demands because I'm a hot commodity with the with the eight year old set. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you definitely are. <laughs> I'll, I'll write you more lines, I promise. <laughs> well, Sean, you mentioned gaining a deeper understanding of what Jesus should mean to us. So what are we going to be looking at today? Well, we're going to be looking at a lot of things, but I think the best place to start today is with a Bible story that really doesn't get a lot of attention, except maybe in passing. And this is really the only story we have from Jesus' childhood. I mean, apart from the stories of his birth and the wise men and King Herod and, and, and so on. Mm, Okay. And of course, part of the reason we really don't hear much from Jesus until his baptism, well, that's the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, which places the appearance of Messiah the Prince exactly 483 years after the decree to build Jerusalem. So until we get to AD 27 and the baptism, it's really too early for Jesus to start his ministry. That, that's right. And so you really don't see public ministry taking place before his baptism, before he's about 30 years old, AD 27, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just one exception. It's the story of Jesus in the temple during the Passover feast when he was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's a story that you find in Luke's gospel. This happens in the same chapter. It happens almost in the same breath as the famous Christmas story in Luke's account. You know, the one everybody reads in December in the days that Quirinius was governor. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And uh, then you also have the account of Jesus being dedicated in the temple, but then the next story is Jesus at age 12. So you have this amazing gap of 12 years where you don't hear anything about the life of Jesus except for this following statement, Luke 2 and verse 40. Listen to this. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. All right. So. According to what we just read, what did Jesus actually do for the first 12 years of his life? Hmm. Well, it says he became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom. So, in other words, he grew. Exactly. Now, I don't want to pass over that point too quickly because it's really important. This says something really profound about the incarnation of Christ. In this passage, we see Jesus, the second person of the Godhead in human form. And the Bible says that he actually grows in strength and wisdom, which means that Jesus, you know, there, he, he's he's an incarnation of God. The Bible's very clear that he had an existence before his birth. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a human child, the Bible's telling us that Jesus had to learn. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. How does the second member of the Godhead come here as a little human baby and actually have to learn? Hmm. 
I don't know that I can wrap my mind around it either. Um, Later on in in John 17, Jesus mentions the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the earth. So before creation, he actually mentions the fact that the Father loved him before the world was created. Right. So at some point, Jesus did have some kind of memory of the ancient ages of eternity before his birth. He did understand who he was and where he came from. But as a child, the Bible says he still had to learn. He had to discover the world Well, the same way that you and I had to discover Mm. the world. And that raises the question of how and when Jesus actually discovered who he really was. What is it that tipped him off that he's actually Messiah? I mean, did his mother tell him about the visit from the angel? You know, she's teaching him the scriptures as a little boy. I'm going to say probably not because the Bible says that she pondered all these things in her heart. It seems to indicate that she kind of kept that stuff to herself. So maybe she didn't uh, tell him. But how did he find out? Hmm. Right. But. What about the dark cloud that surrounded the circumstances of Jesus' birth? Um, I'm sure that people started to whisper gossip, you know, the way that people are prone to do in every age, that Mary had become pregnant, of course, before her marriage to Joseph. Right. The Bible, Matthew makes a big point out of that, that Joseph was going to put her away because he figured something was wrong. Right, right. You know, maybe there was talk that Jesus was illegitimate. Um, I would have to think that maybe Mary would fill him in at some point so he knew that nothing was wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I I would have to think she probably did uh, because the teething, teasing, teething. <laughs> Jesus had to teeth, <laughs> he must too. Have teased yeah, no, too. he did teeth. He was a human baby. <laughs> of we really have trouble wrapping our minds around that, yeah, but he went through tough. a normal human experience. Sure. Um, ah, she she may have told him. I don't really know because the Bible is silent on the subject of what Mary told him, right? right? right. And the fact that it says she pondered these things in her heart indicates that she kept a lot to herself. Yeah. Uh, But I do suspect, I do suspect that the story of Jesus in the temple at age 12 is really, really important. I mean, this is the only story in the Bible from Jesus' childhood. It's bothered people that it's the only one. There are people that filled in details. They made up stories. Jesus went to India and didn't come back until he was 30. You know, they make up stories because it bothers us. This is the only story about Jesus' childhood. And the story begins by telling us that Jesus grew in wisdom, Hmm. right? But then Luke tells us the same thing at the end of the story. He repeats it at the end of the story of Jesus in the temple at 12. He says, and Jesus grew in wisdom. Hmm. It's kind of an idea sandwich, right? Jesus grew in wisdom. Here's a story about that. And then he said, Jesus grew in wisdom again. It's kind of the point of the story in the temple. He's kind of presenting the temple episode as proof that Jesus grew in knowledge. And this episode is one of the most important ways that it happened. Hmm. And what happened in the temple would be one of the most natural places in the world for the boy Jesus to kind of clue in to his real destiny. Um, Because this is a story about the Passover, the very festival that was instituted, of course, to foreshadow what Jesus would do on the cross for us. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The Passover was one of three feasts that were mandatory for every male in the land of Israel, in Mm -hmm. the nation of Israel. And the Passover, of course, commemorated the day that God led Israel out of the land of Egypt. The reason that it was called the Passover is because back in Egyptian captivity, the angel of death came through the land and slew all of the firstborn. But that angel of death, the plague of death, passed over the houses of the Israelites. So the plague fell on absolutely every other house except the Israelite homes. Mm -hmm. And the reason it passed by the Israelite homes wasn't because the Israelites didn't deserve the same fate. 
They deserved all of those plagues as well, because if you go forward in the Bible to Ezekiel chapter 20, it tells us point blank that they were worshiping the Egyptian gods, the Israelites were. The slaves were adopting a lot of Egyptian religion, false religion, so the plagues should have fallen on the Israelites as well. Hmm. During this original Passover event, the Israelites actually got a pardon, some grace, that they didn't deserve. And that's a big theme, of course, in the plan of salvation. So on that night, the original Passover, God gave his people a special sign that exempted them from death. They were to take a lamb, the most spotless lamb they could find. And of course, we know what that would point to. That would point to Jesus. Jesus, They were to sacrifice that lamb, eat it. Uh, Then they would smear the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their home. Mm -hmm. With the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over that home because that lamb was understood to have taken the place of their firstborn sons. And from that day forward, from the original Passover, every Israelite was told to offer the firstborn of their flocks to God in place Mm. of their own firstborn son. It was a perpetual arrangement meant to teach that someone was coming to take their place. Hmm. Kind of like the episode with Abraham and Isaac, where instead of having to offer up Isaac, his firstborn son, in the sense, of course, that Isaac was the legitimate heir to that promise, he wasn't, you know, biologically the firstborn son. But God provided a ram caught in the thicket, a prophetic symbol that God's only begotten son would take our place. Exactly. So imagine, imagine for a moment the the, the impact, the sheer impact that the Passover ritual would have on a 12-year-old Jesus Hmm. as he sees the perfect spotless lamb being offered as a sacrifice for sin. This is the perfect opportunity to deepen Jesus' understanding of why he was born Mm -hmm. and what he came to accomplish. Hmm. And you would think, Sean, that Jesus was probably told what his name meant too, wouldn't you? Because, you know, according to Matthew's account, the angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Yeah, great point. You know, a lot of kids, what does my name mean? You know, (laughs) wouldn't Jesus ask that question? We don't know. There's a lot of silence, but those are interesting questions to ponder. Let's pick up the story now in verse 41. We're in Luke 2. Okay. His, that's Jesus, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, because of course Joseph would be required to as a male. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was almost old enough to be required to go too, so they take him along. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, verse 42, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, like he couldn't get enough of something, right? He lingered behind. He didn't get lost, he lingered. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So they're a day away from Jerusalem before they realize Jesus is missing. <laughs> yeah, and when I realize, read this story, I always have to remember, um, we can't be too hard on Mary and Joseph for losing sight of their 12-year-old boy. Um, we should probably remember that family groups, villages, they traveled together. So, you know, it would be sort of easy to think that Jesus was walking home with another group, with some friends. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we've got to be careful. Today, everybody be up in arms. You left your child behind, they'd call. <laughs> social services, but it's a different world. Mm -hmm. Let's ask this question. Why would Jesus linger after the Passover? Hmm. It's not just because he's a small town boy who's enamored with the sights of the big city, and Jerusalem wasn't that big. Um, It's because he wanted to be at the temple, the very place where he had seen the Passover ritual take place. He lingers behind. He hasn't had enough of this yet. Hmm. Because if you were the son of God and you knew that you were supposed to save God's people from their sins and you had just seen a ritual that actually displayed how it was going to happen, 
Mm-hmm. I think you might linger too. Okay, yeah. verse 45. Verse 45, just before the break, let's squeeze this in. All right. So when they did not find him, Mary and Joseph, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. I'm not always convinced my parents would come back for me, but the, his parents <laughs> came back for Jesus. Verse 46. So, so now it was that after three days they found him in the temple. Okay, just a quick side note before the break. This is interesting. How long was Jesus missing? Mm, three days. Three days, right? They mm-hmm. found him after three days. Move 18 years into the future when Jesus dies. He dies on the Passover, and he's missing. He's <sighs> in the grave, and three he rises days. on the third day, right? And they find him in the temple on the third day. So we have some deliberate foreshadowing here of Mm. the cross. It's the Passover. It's the cross. This is the theme of this story. It's Passover and the cross. It's not accidental or coincidental. No, 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 no. Not at all. Not with God, it isn't. Verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, Hmm. Bible doesn't tell us what they were discussing, but the fact that they had just completed the Passover and the obvious foreshadowing of Jesus' death that was just inserted into the text, well, that's probably a pretty good indication as to what the subject probably was. Because after all, all the gospel accounts drive relentlessly toward the cross. They spend most of their time there. When they get to the last week of Jesus' life, it slows way down. It's the big point. So I hear the music playing. And uh, we've conquered a lot of scripture already this morning. We're going to look at verse 49 when we come back from this break. We're in Luke chapter 2, asking the question, why is this the only story from Jesus' childhood mentioned in the Bible? There's got to be a good reason for it, and we're going to contemplate that a little bit more right after these messages. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers and guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Maybe I'm just getting older, but the breaks seem shorter and shorter and shorter. <laughs> I think that um, was a short break. No, no, they're exactly the same all the time. They're exactly the same length. Hey, if you're joining us just now, we're looking at Luke chapter 2, the only story from Jesus' childhood, where, I mean, other than the story of his birth and, and right. the wise men, Herod, and so on. 12 years old in the temple, and he lingers behind after the Passover ritual, and the Bible doesn't tell us what he's discussing with the religious leaders in the temple, uh, but we saw there's some obvious foreshadowing of the cross, not only the mm-hmm. Passover lamb, but the fact that Jesus is missing for three days and his parents find him on the third day. Um, we're, we're asking the question, what were they talking about? 
And we have a pretty good indication, right? It's all driving toward the cross. The Passover points to the cross. This mm -hmm. three days missing kind of alludes to the cross. Mm -hmm. And um, and the Passover ritual itself that Jesus is lingering behind because he hasn't had enough of what just happened. Right. So we're in Luke 2, verse 49, and Jesus' parents find him in the temple. Listen to this. Okay. And he said to them, why did you seek me? <laughs> to his mom and dad, right? Mm -hmm. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Hmm. So what exactly was his father's business? Well, that's not a quick and easy answer because it's so multifaceted. Jesus accomplished a lot of things. We'll be studying that throughout all eternity, everything that he accomplished with his three and a half years of public ministry and, and throughout his life. Uh, but we do have a few clues as to what the father's business was scattered throughout the Bible. Hmm. Don't yeah, we? yeah, absolutely. Uh, John 17 tells us that he came to show the father's name to his disciples, so to reveal the character of God to the world. Um, and then, of course, Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus came to do the Father's will. Yeah, exactly. It was the whole purpose. Right? And it's found in Hebrews 10, verse 10. And according to the context, the previous verses, mm -hmm. to do the Father's will, I mean, the way that it's spelled out explicitly, is to offer himself as a sacrifice. Now, there's a lot of things that would be doing the Father's will, exemplifying the Father's character, being obedient to God, healing and teaching, all the Father's will. But mm -hmm. here we have an explicit explanation of what the Father's will was for his visit. Let me read a little bit from that chapter, Hebrews 10, verse 8. Okay. So, you know, put your, put your finger in Luke 2. We're going to come back there, but we're in Hebrews 10 right now. Previously saying, Hebrews 10, verse 8, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. So the subject are the Old Testament sacrifices, which of course pointed forward to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Verse 9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus says this. He takes away the first, the Old Testament sacrifices, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Mm. In other words, to do the Father's will, his Father's business, Jesus came as the real sacrifice for sin. Right, that replaced. Mm -hmm. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 that would come to crush the head of the serpent, but the Bible also predicted that when he came, Genesis 3.15, he would get bruised in the process. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way John the Baptist identified him. Mm -hmm. And, and while Jesus absolutely came to accomplish a lot of things, I mean, we'll never finish mining the riches of Jesus' ministry or teachings. Mm -hmm. While he came to do a lot of things, the redemption of a fallen world was the key focus of his agenda. He yeah. came to do what those sacrifices pointed forward to. So, yes. what was Jesus studying and discussing in the temple on the you know, back end of the Passover. Right. I submit to you that he's probably discussing the atonement, the prophecies hmm. of the Old Testament that pointed forward to the saving work of Messiah because it just fits. Hmm. Well, and we'll notice that the teachers in the temple were amazed by the wisdom of this 12-year-old boy. Um, they would have likely been discussing the Passover when he arrived in town, but it would almost seem that Jesus lingered to kind of keep the discussion yeah, I, going. I, I he didn't so. want to let it go. I think so, too. But, yeah. I, you know, we are guessing here, but we're making an educated guess. Right. If you read the Bible in its entirety, you can make really good educated guesses. Mm -hmm. and, and the story just ends like this in verse 52. Luke repeats the key point. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So yeah. there you have the idea sandwich. <laughs> Jesus right. grew in wisdom. Here's the story of one of the ways that happened. 
uh, Jesus in the temple at the Passover. Mm-hmm. And then you he ends by saying, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. So let me propose this idea, and I think we've already proposed it, but the subject matter discussed in the temple that week would have obviously been the scriptures because the yeah. scriptures were the focal point for everything that happened in Israel. Definitely. And even though we know that by the first century AD, the, the religion of Israel had kind of gotten dry and formal, we know that. The scripture still would have been the focus of the Passover week. That would have been the focal point of what happened at the Passover. Hmm. So which scriptures do you think they would have been studying during that time? Well, I don't know for sure in the first century, but we have a pretty good idea because the Passover is still celebrated today, and there are a number of them that feature very prominently. So Mm -hmm. you know you're going to have the book of Exodus in the original Passover. That's going to come up in a reading, right? You're also going to have the story probably from Joshua chapter 5, because after 40 years of disobedience in the wilderness, they didn't celebrate the Passover. And then in Joshua chapter 5, they reinstitute it. So there's a key Passover passage probably Mm -hmm. came up. Uh, Today in the Reformed Jewish tradition, they read from Isaiah 43 because Hmm. it makes a reference to the parting of the Red Sea. So that's probably a candidate as well. Uh, It's not unlikely you would study from Leviticus, which had details on how to to keep the Passover. Makes sense. Uh, There's a couple of others, 2 Kings 23, Ezekiel 37. These are uh, passages that still come up in traditional readings at the Passover festival to to this day. Um, But of all of those... I want to focus on the intriguing possibilities. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can't believe possibilities. it. Possibilities. Well, American English is my second language. Uh, I'm struggling true. to, yeah. <laughs> I speak Canadian English fluently. Flawlessly. Flawlessly. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'm in studio in the early morning. and I, uh, You're not a morning person. Oh, no. You're an evening I'm cranky. Evening Why do we person. do this when I'm cranky? I don't all know. Right. Out of all those question. possibilities, out of all those readings, <laughs> I want to focus on... Well, the possibilities from the book of Isaiah, because from Isaiah chapter 40 onward, Mm -hmm. which would include that traditional reading from Isaiah 43, obviously, Mm -hmm. but from chapter 40 onward, the whole book of Isaiah takes on a different tone, and it starts discussing this mysterious character identified by modern Bible scholars as the suffering servant. The suffering servant. And that, of course, foreshadows Jesus, um, because it's obvious when you read it that it's describing Messiah and what he does for sinners. But more than 700 years before it happened. Yeah, exactly. So out of all those suffering servant chapters from chapter 40 onward, mm-hmm. um, let me zero in on one in particular now, because there's one passage from Isaiah that actually gets quoted seven times in the New Testament, oh, wow. which may or may not be a coincidence, right? Mm-hmm. May, there, there are more allusions than that, but it gets quoted directly seven times. Hmm. Well, that should make you pay attention, shouldn't it? Um, Because anytime you find a group of seven in the Bible, there's significance there. It's the number of completion, the number of perfection. Exactly. And so there's this one section in Isaiah that gets quoted seven times in the New Testament, and it just happens to be an exact prediction of what the Lamb of God would do for sinners when he came. Mm -hmm. And that's the famous prediction of Isaiah 53, which easily, easily stands as one of the clearest and most profound of all the Messianic prophecies. And, and, and while I don't know exactly what they were discussing in the temple that day, you know, Jesus lingers after the Passover, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all if this one came up. Hmm. Right? I, in fact, I'd be shocked if, if this didn't come up. So let's take a look at it, Isaiah 53. It okay. really actually starts back in Isaiah 52. Um, and I think we're going to spend the rest of our time together on this show in Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you're listening out there in listening land, go grab a Bible. You might want to follow along because there's some really rich material here. Now, of course, if you're driving, 
uh, or you're listening at work, you should probably pay attention to what you're doing. So <laughs> just listen for now and then go get Look the podcast later. later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get the podcast, get your Bible later, read it later. But let's start in Isaiah 52. Don't forget okay. that chapters and verses were added much later in the, uh, I think, the 1200s by Stephen Langton. And so uh, the passage here really starts back in Isaiah 52. Gene, mm-hmm. uh, read verse 13. For okay. Me. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. All right. Now, you'll notice that most English translations actually capitalize the word servant because it's just so obvious that this passage is pointing forward to Messiah. This is no ordinary servant. This is the servant of God. Mm. And it certainly fits who Jesus is. Um, You know, Sean, if I'm not mistaken, this word servant appears like 21 times between Isaiah 40 and 55. Exactly. It's the big theme, the suffering servant. Yeah. And, And Jesus could have easily come as a king. You know, he could have hung out in the halls of academia in a royal palace, and any of those people would have been fortunate to have him there. But no, he came as a servant. And that, of course, is one of the key characteristics of the Godhead. By their very nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they live for others. Right, exactly. So you've got this suffering servant, and he's the protagonist in these chapters. Mm -hmm. And then Isaiah says in verse 13 that he will be exalted and extolled and be very high. This is a servant that gets a promotion. Mm -hmm. And what Isaiah says here dovetails nicely with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 as he describes the ministry of Jesus in hindsight. Hmm. Isaiah, uh, no, not Isaiah, sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Put your finger in Isaiah 52 if you're at home, 52, 53. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul's uh, encouraging us to have the same mindset as this servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, Mm -hmm. taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. So who's the servant? It's it's Jesus, Jesus. right? Mm -hmm. And notice that it says he made himself of no reputation. I want to point that out. It's going to come up again a little bit later. But there are some people who say, oh, God made Jesus an unwilling scapegoat and dumped all of our sins on him and punished him instead. No, no. Uh, He participates in this. It's his idea. Important to distinction. Being Mm -hmm. found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, verse 8, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus is exalted because of his humility. Mm -hmm. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm. Now, just an important side note. Paul is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah in this passage um, from the very same set of servant chapters. This comes from Isaiah chapter 45. He's looking back at these same passages. Mm -hmm. And in that passage, Isaiah 45, verse 42, it's God who says, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Mm -hmm. And then it says very clearly that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess to God. Hmm. So what Paul is doing here is establishing the divinity of Christ, something that every reader in the first century would have understood immediately. Bingo. In the first century, this would have been a shocking passage. You just called Jesus God. Mm Mm-hmm. But he's also appealing to those same servant chapters, Isaiah 40 onward, and making the obvious connection that Jesus is the subject of Isaiah's prophecies. And the main point is Jesus willingly laid down his life. He was party to the decision to go to the cross. He emptied himself, made himself a bond servant, and one day because of that, he Hmm. will be exalted above every other name. Wow. 
Now, that part of the prophecy would have been very appealing to the religious authorities in Jesus' day because they were living under the thumb, of course, of Roman oppression. And, you know, I imagine the thought that the rightful heir to David's throne, that he would come, he would set them free, reestablish the kingdom, would have been very appealing. So this part of Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Wow, that would have made perfect sense Yeah, they would have loved that. Messiah is going to come. He's going to be extolled. He's going to be riding high. We'll get rid of the Romans, (laughs) and we'll set up the kingdom right now. That part would have been easy. It's the other part that would have been really hard to accept, Mm. right? Because Isaiah goes on to describe exactly the same thing Paul described, except with far more detail. How does that suffering servant become exalted? Well, he becomes exalted through unimaginable suffering. And that's one of the reasons that the cross was such a struggle for the rulers of Israel in that day. And if we have time today, we'll talk about the fact that's still, I think, really the reason we still struggle with it today because of the nature of that suffering at the cross. I hear the music playing. So we're going to go back uh, in a moment after the break and go to verse 14. I believe we're in Isaiah chapter 52. We'll be right back. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Does my life really matter to God? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. That music means we've entered the third quarter of today's program on Disclosure. I'm with Gene <laughs> Boomster. My name is Sean Boomster. Yep, we're in the second half. And uh, we're talking about the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 40 and the fact that Jesus lingered at the age of 12 after the Passover to discuss things and asking the question, you know, Luke says he grew in stature and wisdom mm-hmm. because of that experience. What did he learn there? Mm-hmm. And the most likely candidate is that he learned about his own destiny as the Passover lamb. He had to grow. He didn't come with, he he had a real human experience. Mm -hmm. And then we went back to Isaiah 52 because it's absolutely in those suffering servant chapters that pointed forward to the cross and the lamb of God. Mm -hmm. Um, And we looked at Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13, which said that Messiah would be highly exalted. But then uh, we discovered as Paul looked back at those suffering servant chapters in Philippians 2, that the way that Jesus was exalted would be through unimaginable humility and suffering and through the cross. Yeah, which so, is hard to get our heads around. Right. So yeah. let's continue. Isaiah 52 and verse 14. Okay. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So let mm. me pause there. 
because there's a thought here we should not miss. In recent years, in the Christian world in the West, and I'm talking the last decade and a half, it's become popular to suggest that Jesus, the way he suffered is he just came and lived a human experience and suffered alongside of us, shared in our misery. But he didn't actually suffer for us or take our penalty on himself. Mm. That's become popular in a handful of circles. Mm-hmm. Theologians call that the substitutionary atonement. He takes the punishment for our sin on himself so that we can have eternal life. In recent years, that's become kind of unpopular in some circles. Thankfully, not a lot of circles, but in some circles, because people don't like the idea of punishment, the idea that God might actually deal with sin or get angry about it. Mm -hmm. But if you want to hold that position that God doesn't get angry and God doesn't deal with sin and it's never been punished, you're going to have to excuse away just too much of the Bible. It's pretty clear on that subject, Mm -hmm. right? It's pretty clear that God does have a threshold on his tolerance, and there comes a point of no return where he deals with sin. Yeah, he does. He takes care of sin. But of course, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love sinners. Um, It's obvious that he does. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. It also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but exactly. have Exactly. God, God's life. not trying to get people out of the kingdom. He's right. not trying to keep you out, keep you out on a technicality if he can. He's trying to get you in. That's why he paid such a high price. Absolutely. But what some people are saying is that Jesus only suffered in the sense that he lived here and shared in our human existence. Okay. But look at what Isaiah actually says. He not only suffered like us, which he did, Hebrews makes that clear, mm-hmm. but he suffered more than us. His mm-hmm. His was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. He suffered in ways that you and I will never have to. Hmm. This is not just empathy that we're talking about. I, I think the rest of the passage is going to make that really obvious. Verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what, they had, for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. You know, all through the book of Isaiah, we find God telling Israel that they were supposed to be a light to the Gentile nations and that eventually all nations would Mm -hmm. come to the light of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's exactly what happened in Jesus. The gift of the cross was for all nations, not just for the chosen nation of Israel. Um, And Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians that we can all be counted as children of Abraham if we are in Christ. And Jesus himself predicted that the gospel would be preached in all the world to all nations before he comes again. So when Isaiah predicts that the story of the cross would go to all nations, they would suddenly see what they had not seen before. That's exactly what happens. The Gentiles see it. Now, we move on to Isaiah 53, which continues the thought. Remember, chapters and verses are kind of artificial later additions. Mm -hmm. Right. And we read some of the most moving material here found anywhere in the Bible. So we're going to slow down a little bit. Not easy for me. Slow is not easy. I don't know that I have a slow setting. I don't think you do. But, you know, if you're finding we're going a little quickly, get the podcast. Go through it again. And you can pause and listen and look stuff up. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you can turn it off, too. Yeah. Okay. Isaiah 51, 53, (laughs) 53. verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice Mm -hmm. that Isaiah is now setting the stage for something that's hard to wrap your mind around. He's just getting you ready. This is big, he's saying. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So it says he's going to grow up. We've already thought about that. Mm -hmm. But then it tells us that he has no comeliness or beauty. Mm. You know, all the modern art depicting Jesus usually has him looking, you know, he's a good looking guy. Usually, oddly enough, Northern European doesn't make a lick of sense, but hey, you know. (laughs) Isaiah makes it clear that's not what people found attractive about Jesus. It wasn't his physical appearance. There was no physical beauty. What drew people to Jesus was his character. What drew people to Jesus was the way the Father's love was shining through him. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And when you get to to the book of Acts, Sean, you don't find Jesus described as an impressive guy that everyone noticed. You know, you find uh, the description from Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where Peter says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good. He went about doing good, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what makes the next part so disturbing. Back mm-hmm. to Isaiah 53 now and verse 3. Okay, we want to go carefully here. He, this suffering servant, is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Mm. Listen, unfortunately, the gospel record is clear. When God became one of us and lived among us, what did we do? We rejected him. Yeah. The gospel, according to John, opens with the same tragic thought. You know, John 1, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. We didn't understand mm. him. Verse mm-hmm. 10, John 1, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We yeah. rejected him. Wow. So, Sean, if Jesus went about doing good and he healed the sick and he hung out with the undesirables, so-called, and did absolutely nothing wrong, why did we reject him? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced that we rejected Jesus because of the nature of sin. Mm -hmm. When you and I are confronted with the reality of what God is actually like, um, well, you never look more sinful than when you stand in the presence of God. Your own flaws show up so much they're, more clearly. They're magnified. You remember, yeah. you remember that church where I was first an assistant pastor way back when, and they were going to renovate the basement. I was <laughs> right. so excited. Ooh, the basement's such a dump. Let's fix it up. The first thing we did was put in new lighting, and we all went downstairs. We're going to turn on the lights. It's going to look so much better. When we turned on the lights, it looked worse than ever because now you could see every chip in the paint and all the mm. smudges on the wall, every little flaw and detail. It's like, oh, these lights are too bright. Turn them off, right? True. Yeah, when Jesus comes, he shows us. He, he's sinless. He shows us the character of God himself and what a human being should have been like before we sinned. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes him shine. But that also at the same time exposes us for who we are. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that means humility. That means repentance. Um, It means owning up to the fact that sin is horrible. And you know that we're part of the problem and that we don't have a solution for it. No, right, exactly. Uh, but Isaiah makes this even more profound, okay. even more profound. Mm-hmm. Not only did we reject him, we rejected him because in the words of Isaiah 53, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. When you look at the cross, you're not just seeing somebody suffer, you're seeing what our depravity did to him. Wow. That's a tough pill to swallow. Definitely. To consider that your sins put Jesus on that cross. It's Mm -hmm. our rebellion, our hatred of God that nailed Jesus to the cross of Calvary. And that's Mm -hmm. not easy to look at. And I'm convinced many people reject the cross because of it. If you want to come to terms with what happened to Jesus at Golgotha, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to come to grips with the horrible nature of your own sin. Not just everybody else's sins, but yours. And some people aren't willing to do that. They would rather convince themselves that sin really isn't all that bad. Oh, it's just a bunch of little misdeeds. God will overlook it. Nothing serious, really. But if you stand at the cross, that idea is gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The cross, that is the reality of sin. That is the reality of what we've done to God's universe. That is the reality of what we are capable of doing when faced with the goodness of God's own son. So, yes, 
when you reject the cross of Christ, you're rejecting Jesus. No question about it. But you know what else you're rejecting? You're rejecting what it says about you. Hmm. That's what you're rejecting. The cross is your ugliness placed on Jesus. Let's hmm. read that again, verse 3. Okay. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Wow. And you know, um, elsewhere in scripture, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus became sin for us. Right. Um, you know, and I think of Galatians 3.13 that says that Jesus became a curse for us, taking what rightfully belonged to us and willingly placing it on himself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And some people don't want our punishment to fall on Jesus because mm -hmm. that just says too much about who I am and, and what I've done. Right. So what they do is try to reinterpret the cross as something else. And the cross is about a lot of things. It shows us the love of God for us. It exposes, you know, it is Jesus triumphing over sin and death. That's yeah, an old absolutely. theory known as Christus Victor. And but it's also our punishment falling on Jesus. We don't want that to be true. So, so they make that about anything except taking my punishment. Because if it really hmm. is about that, yeah. if it's really about my punishment on Jesus, then you have to face how guilty you really are. Yeah. Sin is not a trifling matter. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says that Christ took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us mm -hmm. and nailed it to his cross. Hmm. Now, the original word he uses for handwriting of ordinances is chirographon in the Greek, okay. and it literally means a bill of debt. So in the ancient world, if I commit a crime, they would lock me in a cell and they would put a note above the door. The chirographon was that note. It's the bill of debt. And so, Gene, you robbed the 7-Eleven. They put you in a cell and there'd be a note that says, this is Gene. She robbed the 7-Eleven and she owes us 20 years in prison. That's okay. the chirographon. Right, okay. And when you were released and served your time, they took it down. Hmm. It's your bill of debt. What Paul literally says in Colossians 2 is that Jesus took your bill of debt and nailed it to his cross. In other words, he took your penalty on himself and paid it. It's very visual. Settled it. The way to, I, see, I can see that so clearly. It makes it so real. Right. Right. Yeah. So that says a lot about what you're seeing when you look at the cross. Hmm. In, yeah, you're looking at God and his love. But on the other hand, you're looking at yourself and your real condition. And that's not easy. No. You're looking at the gravity of sin. You're looking at what you actually deserve. But you're also seeing God's plan to handle that, a God of love. Because as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, it's one man who brings sin and the penalty of death on all of us, but it's the death of another human being, the sinless son of man, Jesus, mm. that saves us from that penalty. So you get two streams of the human race. Yeah. We all inherit uh, Adam's propensity for sin, but you can now be adopted into the new human family where Jesus stands as the head at one of us. Jesus dies in your place. That's what makes the cross so hard to grapple with because there's no room for pride when you see that. There's no room for excuses. There's no room for self-exaltation. There's no room for lying to yourself about the horrible nature of sin. When you look at the cross, you're reminded that sin, yes, it really is that serious. Yeah. Okay, verse 5. Before the break, let's take a look at this. Okay. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. What was he wounded for? Our transgressions. Right. He was bruised for our iniquities. Mm -hmm. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. What's chastisement? Yeah. That's punishment. Mm -hmm. And by his stripes we are healed. I hear the music. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the suffering servant. We're asking the question, what would have been the study of subject in the temple when Jesus is 12? He's there for the Passover. He lingers with a, for a discussion with the religious leaders, and the Bible says that he grew in wisdom as a 
as a result of that experience. Were they talking about the Passover lamb? Were they talking about what Jesus would accomplish at the cross? I submit to you, that's the whole point of the gospel narrative. So we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back and we'll reread Isaiah 53 verse 5 and continue our discussion. Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, (laughs) Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers, Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from director Doug at discoverymountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's discoverymountain.com. music tells me we're in the final segment of the show, which has me panicking. How are we going to finish a Bible study this profound and this deep? Well, in we'll the do time? our best. Yeah, we'll do our best. <laughs> we're looking at Isaiah 53, and we just read verse 5. that mm-hmm. said, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I love that verse, Sean, um, particularly because years ago, um, I think it was you that said, Read this verse, but insert your own name into the text. And it really, really brings it home. Um, Let me read it with my name. He was wounded for Gene's transgressions. He was bruised for Gene's iniquities. The chastisement of Gene's peace was upon him. And by his stripes, Gene is healed. Oh, my goodness. You get tears in your eyes when you do that. If you've never tried that. It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah. I recommend trying that. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. there are some quarters of Christianity that are starting to say, it bothers me, it's a brand new trend. Um, There's some corners of Christianity that say Jesus didn't pay for anything at the cross, that he didn't take your punishment. But there's no way you can read Isaiah 53 honestly and come to that conclusion. In fact, I've seen scholars who adopt that position that there's no taking your punishment at the cross. When they come to Isaiah 53, they say, okay, I can't deal with this because it obviously teaches it. I've read that in their their books. When you look at the cross, it tells you this. Sin is every bit as serious as you fear that it might be, and maybe even worse. Um, Jesus isn't just setting a good example at the cross of Calvary. Absolutely, he is laying down his life for you. But he's taking your sins and placing them on himself. Hmm. And the Bible teaches there are no exceptions. You are not the only person on earth who did not sin and does not need a Savior. (laughs) Listen to this. Continue in verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. How many of us? All. All of us. Yeah, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him hmm. the iniquity of us all. Well, so much for the idea that Jesus didn't take the penalty for your sins or my sins. It says that your iniquity was laid on him. So what we did was laid on his account. There's just no getting around it. No, there, there? Re- there really isn't. And I know yeah. there are people out there today objecting to this whole idea that God would take his son and punish him for your sin. Uh, one famous author that's out there in the evangelical world right now even dared to call it cosmic child abuse. He's notorious hmm. for having said that. Hmm. Uh, it's cosmic child abuse, God killing his son on the cross. But they kind of missed the obvious point. Later on in verse 12, it says, Jesus poured out his soul unto death 
And we see that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Jesus went to that cross voluntarily. To say that the Father punished the Son as if Jesus was an unwilling participant, God just, I'm going to take somebody and punish them, Mm. that's twisted. It's a distortion of what the Bible actually says. This is a redemptive, loving act of the entire Godhead working in concert, giving the ultimate sacrifice to redeem this world and to redeem you. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5. The Mm. Father himself loves you, Jesus said in John 6. Oh, Sean, and of course, the most famous verse in the entire scripture is John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Right. So exactly. It's a collaborative effort. It's the whole Godhead. Our iniquities were voluntarily placed on Jesus. You often tell the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac was strong and young and Abraham's old. He could have fought his father off when it came time to sacrifice him. He's pointing forward to Christ. He didn't fight. He willingly goes through with this thinking there must be a greater plan. Jesus was willingly going to the cross. It was the whole Godhead working in concert. Our iniquities are voluntarily placed on Jesus and he takes them for us. Yeah. You know, and it is kind of hard to wrap your head around. Um, And it should make any one of us think twice about playing around with sin and sinful things. All it takes is a few minutes at the foot of the cross to remind us of what sin actually cost. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Verse 7, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Hmm. Now, of course, that's exactly what happened. Jesus refused to defend himself even though it would have been easy, right? You know, they used to take the Passover lamb gene on the 10th day of the month. They would put it on display. Every family would choose one. Mm -hmm. And they put it on display so everybody could inspect it to see if it was without spot and without blemish. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that 10th day with the crowds adoring him. And for the next few days, he teaches in the temple. The whole world could see that he was innocent. And the only defense, this is the only defense Jesus gives in his trial. When the high priest questions him, Jesus said, hey, It's in John 18, verse 20. I was always teaching in the open in the synagogues. Go ask people what I said. Yeah, right. Right? He wasn't doing it secretly. But he doesn't plead for his life. That's his only defense. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Hmm. And they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because they had he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Oh, there's so mm-hmm. much here that we could, I mean, <laughs> it's deep, deep we, we stuff. find people standing yeah. with the Lamb of God in Revelation 14. They have no deceit in their mouth. They're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Right. But just notice this for now. They did tr- crucify Jesus between two criminals, and then he's placed in a rich man's tomb, exactly mm-hmm. the way that Isaiah predicts. Yeah. Now comes the bit that really drives home the fact that Jesus died in your place and took your punishment. There's no way around this. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. The Hebrew word that's used there is amat. And that's the word used dozens and dozens of times in the book of Leviticus and Numbers to describe the sin offering or the transgression offering. It's literally saying that he was made a sin offering for us. 
See, the amath, when you send you offer the amath and a substitute would die in your place, you would lay your hands on the, hand, the head of that animal, confess your sins. Symbolically, it was transferred to that animal and it died in your place. What God is doing here is telling the world that when Jesus died on the cross, he's your sin offering. He was taking your place mm-hmm. as a sacrifice for sin so that you don't have to pay the ultimate price. Yeah. Now, here comes the good news, the rest of verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So the cross is not the end. He shall see the labor of his soul. And this is one of my favorite statements in the Bible. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, Hmm. for he shall bear their iniquities and justify them. What the suffering servant was going to do, Isaiah tells us, actually works. Jesus didn't die in vain. He died to save you. And the Bible says that he will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He can justify you because he bore your iniquities, your sins. Your punishment was placed on him. And that's God's wrath against sin. Hmm. He took that on himself willingly. And even though it broke their hearts, God the Father and God the Son paid this unbelievable price to secure your place in the kingdom. Okay. Back to Isaiah chapter 53, because here's how it ends. It's verse 12. And this is, well, this is beautiful. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, Hmm. and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Uh, Transgressors, rather. So here's how it stands. Now there are two strands to the human race. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15. You've got all those who came after Adam, Mm -hmm. all of us who were born with a sinful nature because of the way Adam tainted the whole human race. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Bible says, and the wages of sin is death. Mm -hmm. That's what we deserve. But then you've got Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He becomes a human being, one of us. Mm -hmm. He becomes a new Adam, if you will. And even though he has never, ever sinned, even though he doesn't deserve it, he allows your iniquities to be laid on him. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, Sean, it reminds me of, of how one of my favorite authors from the 19th century, how she wrote it. It's just beautiful. She says, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we may be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness, in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. By his stripes we are healed. Gorgeous. She even quotes. I notice she's quoting Isaiah 53. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's sum this up. Uh, There's so much more we could talk about. We could talk about how Peter quotes Isaiah 53 and makes it really, really obvious that Jesus took our sins on himself. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's sum it up. Let's say that I'm right. We are making an educated guess, but let's say that I'm right. Let's say that as Jesus lingered in the temple after the Passover to discuss what he had just seen, let's say that Isaiah's suffering servant came into the mix. It's very likely we know that people still to this day make reference to those chapters on uh, the Passover. Mm -hmm. At some point, he's 12 years old, at some point, Jesus would have realized that he was the Lamb of God. He had to grow in wisdom. He had a human experience. But at some point, the light goes on. At some point, God whispers in his ear. The Father whispers in his son's ear, this is you. Well, you know, and and Sean, I can can picture that. We all probably remember instances from our childhood where it's like, a light goes on, and you suddenly understand. It's like waking up to a knowledge. And 
imagining Jesus sitting in the temple at 12, finally realizing that reality, it's powerful. Well, what's it like to see that Passover lamb sacrificed and you grow in stature and wisdom, you go, oh, that's me. That's what I've come to do. Uh, If this was the occasion where that happened, where it dawns on him, this I am Mm -hmm. the Messiah, I am God's only begotten son. Uh, If it happened in the temple after the Passover, I think that's very likely because this is the only story from his childhood there. And it's it's meant to tell us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in understanding. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means that he saw this as a young boy at 12 and went through with it anyway. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. He still chose willingly to yeah. keep going. It's no wonder the devil tried to tempt him, in the, tempt him in the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry. Remember the story. Hey, Jesus, why go through with this? Right? Yeah, Just bow down absolutely. to me. I'll give you the whole planet. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Just bow down and worship me. But Jesus didn't do it because to bow down and worship the devil would have meant losing everything, including you. Mm. You know, Gene, I, I have no idea how I'm going to die. The older I get, I, I'm narrowing down the realm of possibilities. You know, I'm starting to think about it. And the older I get, I think, okay, it could be this, could be that. I know how my ancestors went. Uh, But for the most part, I don't really know. And so I'm pretty glad of that. I'd hate to know, for example, that I'm going to die in a horrible car wreck on a Thursday afternoon because I'm going to be thinking about that every Thursday when I'm driving the car, (laughs) right? That's true. Is this going to be the day that I get pinned under the car and I burn in the wreckage slowly, right? Right. Right. Crying out for my wife, where are you? Where are you? Oh, look at that. I made you tear (laughs) up a little bit. Yeah. But for the most part, I have no idea. None. But Jesus, as he grows in wisdom and stature, as he grows from childhood into his prophetic role as Messiah, at some point he will know. Yeah. He would have seen it every single year when they put the lamb on display on the 10th of the month and then killed it on the 14th. He would know it's him. And that's how he was going to die. He would have known that the servant in Isaiah 52, who suffers more than anybody has ever suffered in the history of the world, he'll know that it's him and he still goes through with it. He, he went through with it where you and I would have recoiled in horror and just walked away. Yeah. He does it, the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? It's you. It's this whole world put back the way that it's supposed to be. It's this world with a new Adam and the presence of God living with the human race forever. It's you, the thought of you in his kingdom, safe from the ravages of sin and suffering forever. And that's why Jesus did it. For you. Listen, if you're listening today and you're still not convinced... I'm begging you, go find a quiet place sometime, grab a Bible, read through Isaiah 53 again by yourself, and read it out loud. Mm -hmm. It will turn your life upside down. So now at this moment, the question actually comes to you, listener. As you realize why Jesus appears stricken and smitten by God, when you realize that it's our sins that do that, what reason could you possibly have to say no to Jesus. He went about doing yeah. good. He came and gave everything he had to make sure you were in the kingdom. We deserve nothing but what we chose. Why would we ever be a part of the group that rejects Jesus? When you could be part of that group that Jesus looks at one day and when he sees you standing in that crowd, he sees the labor of his soul, he remembers the cross and its agony, but at that moment he's satisfied because, well, his cross saved you. And I think he'll think Wow, it was worth it. Worth every minute. Yeah. If you haven't yet come to face Jesus in the cross, accept it. There's no way back into the kingdom except to be forgiven. Jesus paid your penalty. Stand at the cross and embrace it. Your sin did that, but you're forgiven in Jesus Christ because he wants you in the kingdom. It's the desire of his soul, and it's up to you at this moment whether or not he'll be satisfied with the price he paid to have you in Mm -hmm. the kingdom. For this week, this is Sean Boonster. This has been Disclosure. Disclosure.